Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is one. RadioNetwork.com. Well, a very pleasant uh, good morning to you. This is Patrick Timpone, and this is OneRadioNetwork.com. OneRadioNetwork.com. It's a Wednesday morning, the 8th of December. Oh, that's my sister's birthday. Happy birthday, sister. Yesterday was the 80th anniversary of the whole Pearl Harbor affair in, in 1941, 80 years ago, and there's a whole story about that one that we won't get in today, but you might want to look in the book, The Day of Infamy, The Day of Infamy, about Pearl Harbor. And, well, I'm sorry to say that it just wasn't as they said it was. And I, I love the quote from Huey P. Long, the great Huey P. Long. He said, the only thing new in this world is the history that we don't know. And this morning we're going to talk about some history that you maybe don't know. And it's all about Tricky Dick, Richard Nixon, uh, an interesting character, and uh, you may have seen the uh, one of my favorite movies uh, called Nixon by uh, um, Oliver Stone, and we're going to see from our guest Jeff Shepard if that's even close to the truth. Mr. Shepard's a uh, very fascinating guest. We're excited about talking to him. He came to Washington, D.C. in 1969. He graduated uh, Whittier College. I think that's where Nixon graduated from, if I remember, from the movie. I think so. Well, we'll ask him. And also Harvard Law School. He was one of the youngest lawyers on President Nixon's White House staff. He served on the Domestic Council for five years, and he was associate director. And then he worked as deputy counsel on Nixon's Watergate defense team, and he spent much of his career since then researching Watergate issues and is today the foremost authority on the behind-the-scenes developments. He has three books, one he wrote in 2008, The Secret Plot to Make Ted Kennedy President. Whoa. The Real Watergate Scandal. That was in uh, 2015. And his latest book just out called The Nixon Conspiracy. So it's an honor to have you. Mr. Uh, Shepard, Joff Shepard, thanks for coming on the show. I'm really excited about talking to you. I'm a, I love to get history that we don't know. I love it. Well, that's, that's super, Patrick. I'm, I thank you for having me on. I look forward to our talk. Yes, sir. So... Way back when, when the whole thing started, as a on his team, when they were impeaching President Nixon, what did your team believe he was really being charged for, and who was behind it? What did you who who did you think were the people that were after him back then? Well, the the most immediate threat, of course, was the uh, uh, Watergate Special Prosecution Force. Uh, it had been established uh, uh, right after uh, 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 Nixon let his uh, top aides go. Uh, there was a there was a break in. The break in was in June of '72. There was a cover up. The cover up collapsed uh, really in April of '73, and uh, 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 Nixon nominated Elliot Richardson to be his attorney general, and Richardson. Uh, allowed the Senate Judiciary Committee to impose conditions on its confirmation, one of which was the creation of this special prosecution force. And it turns out uh, from the from the very get-go, uh, it was designed to be 100 people. Uh, there were n- none of this fooling around with, uh, with small-town uh, uh, prosecutors. Uh, uh, and they announced at their first press conference they were going to investigate every single allegation made against Richard Nixon since the time he took office in 1969, in January of 69. Wow. Uh, that, was the, that was the major threat. There were 
political threats too, but he just been reelected uh, by the largest electoral man's, uh, landslide in the nation's history. Uh, he took every single state except Massachusetts and the District of Columbia, and he uh, accumulated a 61 percent uh, uh, majority. Uh, so he'd, he'd run for office for the last time. The real issue was this special prosecution force. Uh, and there were leaks and there was adverse press coverage uh, nonstop. Uh, but we never really knew specifically what Nixon was accused of having done. That's why your question wow. uh, is so intriguing. Wow. We didn't know. And what had happened they used the grand jury to gather evidence of criminal conduct. That was why the special prosecution force was founded. Uh-huh. Uh, but then they decided, this is the special prosecutor, the second one, Leon Jaworski, in conjunction with secret conversations with Chief Judge John Sirica, they decided that the law was too unclear on indicting a sitting president. It's unclear today. That wasn't an unreasonable conclusion. So they decided what they needed to do was get the evidence that they had gathered by use of the grand jury uh, uh, in secret, get that up to the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, uh, but, of course, grand jury evidence is supposed to stay sealed until introduced in court. And then there's all kinds of rules on, on how you introduce evidence. But what they did on March 1st, uh, 1974, they sprung, to our complete surprise, a secret report. And the grand jury asked that report be forwarded to the House Judiciary Committee, sealed. Uh, and they said this will lead to Richard Nixon's impeachment. I see. Because it would have led to his guilt if, if we had indicted him. Uh, and so the, this report was nicknamed the Roadmap because it would lead to his certain impeachment, and we didn't know what it said, and it stayed secret until 2018, uh, and then it was unsealed for the very first time in response to my court petition. I had gone into court asking that it be unsealed, uh, uh, and the judge, the new chief judge of the district courts in uh, District of Columbia, uh, asked archives how much of it had become known in the intervening 47, 48 years. Uh, and they, they told her. And then she said, well, let's unseal that part. And then you tell me who would be hurt or, or troubled by what hasn't become already become public. So that's where things stood. And the National Archives has posted the roadmap and uh, assorted documents in connection with the roadmap on their website. So it's publicly available for people to see. Now, the interesting thing, you asked, so you get a long answer to this, okay. Timothy. So yeah, I mean, me. who, I find this stuff fascinating. Who were these uh, people? So do I. But who were these people that were after him? There had to be forces. Were, was, it, was it people above the Democrats who just wanted to get him out? Are there... That's what your book's about, right? Oh, oh! It, uh, uh, Elliot Richardson concurred in the naming of Archibald Cox to be the first special prosecutor. He'd been his uh, law school professor at Harvard. He was a professor of labor law, but he was a dyed-in-the-wool 
Kennedy uh, alone. I see. He had uh, he had flown on Jack Kennedy's campaign plane in the 1960 election. He had assembled Kennedy's much vaunted Harvard Brain Trust in the 1960 election. He had then been appointed Solicitor General at the Department of Justice, which of course was run by uh, Kennedy's younger brother, Robert Kennedy. Archibald Cox was generally considered to be the adult in the room who would uh, temper some some of Robert Kennedy's uh, excesses. Uh, uh, and and people could tell right at that moment that there was going to be a, a legal pogrom going after Nixon. They they hired, as I said, a, a hundred people. The top seventeen lawyers, sixty of these people were were lawyers. The top seventeen had been lawyers in Robert Kennedy's Department of Justice, or at least Department of Justice during the Kennedy and Johnson administration. The mid level lawyers were prosecutors mainly out of the Southern District of New York, uh, which prosecuted the mob. That was where their experience came from. Mm -hmm. And they treated the Nixon White House as the equivalent of the mob. If you showed up for work, then they could they could show motive, they could show opportunity, or that you were probably guilty of something. Right. Uh, and the younger people, my age, the younger people, uh, they all hated Nixon because of the uh, the threat of the draft during the Vietnam War. So you had a rabid bunch of people who were after, who were after him, and they yeah. targeted him and, and his staff. The, the second special prosecutor even complained in a secret memo to his staff, to his deputy, saying this entire staff revolves around the theory they must get to Nixon at all costs. Those were his words. Wow. At all costs. And he went on to say, I can't even meet with you to get your points of view because you have a pre-meeting before you come in to be sure there's only going to be one answer to my questions. It's not It's not even worth my listening. Have you ever seen any evidence, Mr. Shepard, that um, would would lead to the idea that people who had interest in Vietnam, either getting in, staying in, or getting out, were involved in getting Nixon out. No, I can come close to that, Patrick, but not the way you're asking okay. the question. All right. If you if you remember, Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers. Yes, sir. New York Times printed them. Right. Uh, uh, that was in uh, uh, 1971. Uh, Nixon was very upset. Considered the greatest. Uh, national security league at the time that we'd ever experienced uh and he wanted that stopped and it turned out ellsberg had had access to fifty-four thousand pages of other classified documents and the thought was we needed to know what he had in mind so they established a special unit to investigate leaks they called themselves the plumbers mm -hmm. this is on the white house staff right because they were supposed to stop leaks and unfortunately, one of them came up with a brilliant idea of breaking into Daniel Ellsberg's shrink's office to see if he possibly told his shrink what he intended to do with this knowledge of other classified information. Uh, that They botched the break-in. This was not a classic black bag job done by the FBI or surreptitious entry done by the CIA. Uh, they couldn't pick the lock, so they broke in. 
scattered papers around to make it look like somebody was after narcotics. But that assured that there was a police report. And then years later, when it turned out the people who had actually masterminded the Watergate break-in, which was e equally botched, those people were caught red-handed, were the same people who had masterminded the break-in into Dr. Fielding's office in Beverly Hills. So it came close. I mean, the, the, the opposition to the war was an action-forcing event that underlay what what developed into Watergate, but not the direct connection that your did, question did, implied. Did Richard Nixon cover up the Watergate thing? I mean, did, and was that a crime or a, or misdemeanor or well, impeachable? You, impeachable. It, uh, uh, there are there are three absolute rules here, three absolute certainties that your listeners can take to the bank. There really was a break-in. Yes, no question about that. They were caught red-handed. There really was a cover-up because the knowledge of the possible break-in went up pretty high in the president's re-election campaign group. Not within the White House itself, but within the campaign group. And of course, Richard Nixon really resigned. Uh, uh, but it's never been shown, uh, uh, or I don't even think even charged, that Richard Nixon or his top assistants on the White House staff knew of the break-in in advance. Really? But others did, and that's that's where the problem came from. That's why there was there was a cover-up. John Dean, the president's lawyer, had been assigned the responsibility of creating a campaign intelligence plan. Now, people in campaigns have always had these. Today, they call it opposition research. We've got to know all about our opponents what his issues are, where he's going to be speaking, who, who's going to endorse him. Uh, and, and we'd like to find out. So we, we do our best to learn that. Uh, he recruited Gordon Liddy uh, to do this, to establish John a Dean campaign did. intelligence plan. John Dean did. And unfortunately, John Dean did. Unfortunately, Gordon Liddy got carried away. Um, <laughs> and he envisioned a really, really aggressive, to the extent of showing off how tough he was. His plan included specific provisions for mugging the president's opponents, bugging his opponents, kidnapping demonstrators, and uh, use of prostitutes to uh, uh, try to get information out of prominent Democrats at their at their convention. Wow. Just incredible stuff. Wow. And, and, and he... he felt he deserved a million dollars to go pursue this plan. And the folks at the reelection committee said, gee, the, uh, the only person with the authority to commit a million bucks is John Mitchell, and he's still attorney general. He hasn't even come over to run the reelection campaign. So believe it or not, four people went over to John Mitchell's office, and Gordon Liddy presented his pride and joy, this incredible plan. And it was John Dean who had hired him, Gordon Liddy who developed the plan, and a guy named Jeb Magruder who was acting head of creep, and of course, John Mitchell. Uh, so when the burglars were arrested in the break-in, those four people uh, were at risk of prosecution. They had known of the plan, not necessarily approved it, but they sure knew about it. And John Dean, who, who was the president's lawyer, 
uh, quickly volunteered to keep a lid on this and keep the problem over at the re-election campaign. But he treated the re-election campaign and the White House staff as roughly interchangeable. And then when the uh, uh, when the uh, uh, excuse me, just a second. That's right. When the uh, uh, cover collapsed, and it should have collapsed, the way John Dean decided to save himself uh, was to was to assert there'd been a conspiracy. Now he built the conspiracy. The only question for prosecutors was how high up that conspiracy went. And, I, and I, there's a real loophole here that we need to have out for your listeners. Uh, in the law of conspiracy, when it is shown that a conspiracy exists or existed, the proof necessary to add in additional participants is almost negligible. All it takes is the prosecutor to say, I think these guys were a part of it too, and not much more than that. Well, there really was a conspiracy. John Dean was running it. Uh, and that's the second great flip where he accused his superiors of being in on the cover-up and announced he was the only guy who could link them because he was the only guy who was meeting with them. Now, we know... We know there were meetings. We don't know what was said at the meetings, except the Oval Office meetings, which were taped. The original prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office in the district who prosecuted the burglary and broke the cover-up, they wouldn't give John Dean immunity. They said he was too involved. Dean's immunity came from the Senate committee investigating the situation, the Senate Watergate Committee. They gave John Dean immunity, and that necessitated their treating him as a hero. So John Dean comes off to the public as, as this whistleblower. Right. Right. But it, he wasn't a whistleblower. He was running the cover-up. So, so um, let's see. So what were the Liddy and that crowd, what were they really after? You know, their rumors and stories for years that one of the reasons they went into Watergate was to get evidence that Nixon was involved in Kennedy's assassination. you think there's anything to that? Well, no, I think you have it reversed, Patrick. Uh, okay. The break-ins were to get break-ins were to get proof on Kennedy uh, or, or, or proof, pr proof that would help Nixon and his campaign. Uh, uh, but, but let's go back. No, wait a minute. Oh, no, I'm sorry. But Kennedy was dead. Uh, but so you you've never seen anything to 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 think that Nixon was involved with Kennedy's assassination. That's the story why they wanted to go in there. Well, uh, I have a very vague memory of that accusation, but okay. it's not achieved any any bit of of credibility. Fair enough. Fair uh, enough uh, yeah. of, of that situation. I think he might have been in Dallas for another purpose. Uh, at, at that time, uh, uh, at the time of uh, Jack Kennedy's assassination, but not in connection with, with Kennedy's visit. I think I read somewhere uh, uh, that. What's happened on Watergate is a series of books that I call the Doubter books right. that seek to show that what we've been told about the circumstances surrounding the 
actual Watergate break-in. Five guys break in to the uh, uh, Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate office building, and they're caught red-handed. Uh, but as with almost any super major event, the Kennedy assassination, the landing on the moon, there are slippages or facts that don't quite align. And there's a series of books. Uh, the first one was by the minority counsel of the Senate Urban Committee, Fred Thompson. Of course. Uh, and he wrote a book called At That Point in Time. And he described all the near misses and, and close chances they had to break the investigation wide open that somehow never came to fruition. The guy uh, died the night before he was supposed to be a, uh, a witness. Uh, the CIA uh, wouldn't, wouldn't cooperate. And then there was a book called uh, Secret Agenda uh, by uh, Jim Hogan. And that basically said, look, these were all CIA people. Gordon Liddy of, of the top seven who inv were involved in the break-in, Gordon was the only one not connected to the CIA. They knew what was going to happen. They didn't bother to tell Nixon. And then there's a book by uh, Lynn Kalodny that came out in 1994 called Silent Coup, C-O-U-P, Silent Coup. And he says, th this is all John Dean. John Dean planned the break-in because he was fearful there were embarrassing pictures of his fiancée, and he wanted them removed from the premises. Really? And that there was a, an effort to do that, uh, and, and the effort failed, but then John Dean's job was covering up what he had tried to do. I, I had no connection with the break-in. I'm innocent, innocent of all of this. Uh, so I have no inside information. My expertise is what was going on with Nixon's defense team, the lawyers defending the president, and what was going on behind the scenes with the government prosecutors, the special prosecution team that was specifically hired uh, to get Nixon. And I've spent many, many years. Those, their documents, uh, the special prosecutor's documents, uh, uh, are at the National Archives, those that, that have survived. And I have uncovered, in addition to that Watergate roadmap that I got unsealed in 2018, uh, uh, I've uncovered four caches of documents uh, uh, from the prosecutors that they improperly took with them when they left office. Hmm. So Archibald Cox, the first special prosecutor, his top assistant, James Vorenberg, they both were Harvard law professors. They took their records back to Harvard. And after they died, their records became available at Harvard's law library. Now, I, I went to Harvard too, so I've been back there taking a look at those records. But by all rights, those are government documents. They should be at archives. The other two caches are Leon Jaworski. He was the special pro second special prosecutor. He took his confidential Watergate files with him when he left. And his immediate lawyer, a gentleman named uh, Phil Lacavara, who was counsel to the special prosecutor, he took all of his records. And uh, Jaworski surfaced in 2013. Uh, uh, Phil Lacavara's surfaced last year. They're back at the National Archives, but I was in every one of these instances. I was the first person to go through those documents. And of course, 
I knew what we were doing on the other side. I knew what we were trying to accomplish. Uh, uh, so I could make more sense out of those uh, th- those recently uncovered right. documents. Yeah. So was there any evidence that the CIA and the FBI wanted Nixon out? Well, let's cut that in two parts. Uh, uh, let's deal with the FBI. All right. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover qualified to retire uh, under the Kennedy administration, uh, and he was allowed to stay on through the Johnson administration and through the Nixon administration. And he got older and older. I don't remember how old he was when he passed away, but he should have retired 10 years before. And he became more and more worried about embarrassing risks being taken by the FBI. Uh, so uh, Hoover thought the world, Nixon, they were, they're actually fairly close. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, what happened was after Hoover uh, uh, died, uh, Nixon named Pat Gray to be acting director. Pat Gray didn't come from within the FBI. And this gentleman who was a career FBI officer uh, uh, Mark Felt uh, uh, started leaking documents for the purpose of showing that that uh, uh, Pat Gray couldn't run the the FBI that it was it was beyond his ability, and and, and uh, Felt's whole desire was to then be named director. Well, he's the one it turns out to be deep throat. He's the one mm-hmm. who was leaking to Bob Woodward the status of the investigation. So. I don't think it would be fair to say the FBI was against Nixon, felt actually liked Nixon. Uh, you know, Nixon was a law and order president, uh, but Felt's leaks were used to destroy Nixon. And the CIA? Now, the CIA, yeah, CIA. The CIA is a little bit different. Is it? Richard Helms was appointed by Lyndon Johnson and kept in office by Nixon. When Nixon left the vice presidency in January of 1961, there were three things underway. There was a planned invasion of Cuba uh, that the CIA was orchestrating. Uh, uh, DM was president of uh, 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 a democratically chosen president of South Vietnam. And we had secret missiles in Turkey aimed at the Russian capital. And when Nixon came back into office eight years later, none of those things were true. The, uh, uh, the invasion of Cuba was horribly botched. Uh, Diem had been assassinated and uh, we, had pro- we had withdrawn our missiles uh, uh, from uh, Turkey and promised under the uh, Kennedy administration we would never invade uh, uh, or affect internal affairs in Cuba again. And Nixon wanted to know what the heck had happened. And he wanted to know from Richard Helms. And Helms took the position that the CIA served one president at a time, that it did not tell the successor what it had, what had been accomplished under the former. Hmm. So there was great tension and they did not like each other. Uh, uh, It was like, uh, 
Uh, well, this is unfair, but it's the cobra and the mongoose, you know, circling each other. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, I, I believe, without much proof, that the CIA knew of the planned break-in and let it happen. That they did not warn Nixon. They said, well, this is Nixon's staff. They're going to get him into trouble. Uh, let's see how he handles it. Yeah. In Oliver uh, so Stone's film, Nixon... He alleges that Helms had something on Nixon and the reason Nixon kept him in as head CIA guy. You think that's possible? Well, you know, uh, whenever you have an agency that deals in secrets, CIA, an agency with tens of thousands of agents, FBI, uh, there's the likelihood that they have embarrassing information uh, and that they can really hurt you. Yes. That uh, wouldn't surprise me. Uh, uh, there were allegations from before. Uh, I don't think they're true that Nixon, through uh, Anna Chenault, conveyed to the South Vietnamese that they should not uh, come to Paris for the Lyndon Johnson peace talks, the October surprise. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. Uh, there was always allegations of this $200,000 loan from Howard Hughes, famous Hughes loan. Yes. Uh, again, I, I, I have no reason to, to believe, but, uh, and even back to the, uh, the checkers speech back in, uh, 1952, that that uh, uh, Nixon uh, Nixon's expenses were being absorbed by a uh, by supporters done in an improper way. Wow. Uh, I'd hate to have the either of those agencies look into what Lyndon Johnson was uh, was accused of, or Jack Kennedy, uh, but or subsequent presidents, uh, <laughs> right. the recent one, and 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 maybe the the Clintons. Um, there's always. When you're, when you're the president, you are subject to all kinds of accusations. It makes news, and and these are these are bandied about. I'm pretty much a Republican, and so I tend to be very interested in the accusation about Democrats. <laughs> and I can assure you, the Democrats are much more interested in accusations about Republicans. Yeah, you think. <laughs> Okay. okay, we need yeah. to take a little break here, sir. Thank you. This is fun. Uh, we're having a good time talking with uh, Jeff Shepard. Uh, his book is called The Nixon Conspiracy. The Real Watergate Scandal was written in 15, and then a secret plot to make Ted Kennedy president. I want to ask about that because, you know, the Kennedy stuff, the whole, that's interesting and just, you know, talking about it. Let me uh, do a little break here, and then we're going to continue. Where is the one I'm looking for? I think it's around here somewhere. Oh, here it is. Here's physicist, biologist, chemist, Dr. Gerald Pollack on far infrared saunas. Infrared uh, energy is what builds this fourth phase of water. And the idea of a sauna, you know, you go in and you sweat and you, you receive this infrared energy and you feel great after you, uh, after you come out. I felt uh, the same and so have so many people and most of us think well you know it's just uh, some sort of psychological issue and it, it 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 might be however experimentally we know that infrared energy builds the fourth phase your cells 
should be or should be filled with this fourth phase. But uh, but you know we we tend to be somewhat dehydrated uh, and missing some of this this fourth phase. And so what happens is if you subject yourself to infrared, the infrared is absorbed by your body, absorbed by your cells, and it converts ordinary water to fourth phase water and then you feel better how cool is that that's very cool and boy if you'd like to get one of these guys i'd love to sell you one uh, we uh just two or three in the last few days you know it starts getting cold and people think about it and it's a it's a great time to get one we have the best price uh, that you can get on this unit it's a portable unit as you saw the picture and uh, uh your head is sticking out and you don't get your head all heated up there and it's it's really uh, well worth your your looking at, and it's a uh, one thousand two hundred ninety five dollars delivered in the lower forty eight. For those of you in Portland, that doesn't include Alaska or Hawaii. I get Portland, that's a hard time. And uh, so, just uh, email me, and we'll give you the best price twelve ninety five. We ship them all over the world. We're shipping one to the UK today, and they'll come with the proper plug and the voltage. Uh, no matter where you live, just email me, Patrick at one radionetwork.com. A couple of years ago, we got introduced to a technology called Brown's Gas Hydrogen Machine with George Wiseman. And uh, I tell you what, I, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of technologies and uh, me doing radio things for 50 years. You can imagine all the gadgets people send me and the stuff they want me to take. This is the most powerful technology, no fooling, that I've ever uh, used. We breathe the gas and drink the water, and here's a little bit from uh, Dr. Levy about it. Whoops. Let me push the right button, sorry. Previously, with the highly credentialed Dr. Thomas Levy, he argues because the literature shows that oxidation is the cause of disease. But the whole point is the location, the concentration, the duration, the distribution of oxidized biomolecules determines 100% of all diseases. And so that's why I say oxidative stress doesn't cause disease. Oxidation is disease. It is disease. If there's no oxidized biomolecules, you don't have a toxin. The toxic effect is oxidation of biomolecules. That's the entirety of it. And by the grace of God, several months ago, George Wiseman said this about hydrogen. Hydrogen is the world's best antioxidant by a long shot. Hmm. First of all, it's 700 times uh, smaller than something like uh, CoQ10, 400 times smaller than vitamin C, things like that. So it can literally go, the hydrogen molecule can literally go through everything in your body and go right into the very DNA and repair it. So now it makes sense why George was able to say this back in August 2019 with such conviction. The body accepts that gas and uses it to heal everything. It's like the fountain of youth. It's a, astonishing the amount of ailments. In fact, in scientific studies, and they have over a thousand scientific studies now, they're showing that it either helps the body heal directly or indirectly from virtually every ailment that ails any water-based life form. Okay, I'm sold. And I was able to get one a couple of months ago, thanks to your support. It's called the AquaCure Hydrogen Machine. Breathe the gas and bubble the water. There's a promo code One Radio for 10% discount. I think a great investment for you, knowing what we know now. On OneRadioNetwork.com. 
And uh, that commercial was recorded a couple of years ago. We've had it, I think, a little over two years. It's really very, very interesting. And as you know, I'm a real uh, longevity fellow, and I don't really believe in aging. I, I was born uh, on November 1946, and I think it's all a big scam getting old, but that's just me, and I think this is really uh, helping the whole staying uh, youthful longer. I, I, I know it is. But So anyway, check it out. Email me if you'd like uh, to ask me a question about it or just uh, click an order, promo code one radio on OneRadioNetwork.com. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, it's great fun talking uh, politics, especially when it's swampy politics. There's a lot of that going around with, with uh, Jeff Shepard, his latest book called The Nixon Conspiracy. And he was in on the his, uh, his defense team early on in his career and uh, worked for President Nixon's White House staff. Back then, when, when this was all going on, uh, Mr. Shepard, how many people, how many attorneys did Nixon have? Were you just one of many? I mean, like 20 or... A lot. Well, uh, he had a council's office. The position is counsel to the president, right? Uh, and it was five, maybe six lawyers, originally run by John Ehrlichman. Yeah. Uh, and then John became his head of domestic affairs, and he took all his staff with him. So they hired in his stead a, a classic bureaucratic move that blew up in their face. John picked someone who was demonstrably less qualified uh-huh. to become counsel so that he wouldn't compete in the future with John's new responsibilities. He picked John Dean. Uh, uh, but John had nothing to do because the important stuff was taken by John Ehrlichman. The policymaking stuff was taken by John Ehrlichman to this new group called the Domestic Council. It's the counterpart of the National Security Council that exists today. I see. Uh, John hired a lawyer uh, named uh, Fred Fielding, and pretty much that was where things stood uh, until things heated up considerably in Watergate. And then we had three or four lawyers because there were so many demands for documents and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, And then we needed an outside lawyer to do the trial work in the in the hearings and, and in uh, arguments over the White House tapes. Um, so we divided the uh, responsibilities like they do in England. In England, there is a, a solicitor who deals with the clients and prepares the cases. And then there's a barrister. And the barrister represents the case in court with a wig and everything else. Yeah. Uh, uh, but usually doesn't speak directly to the clientele. Well, the inside lawyer who was running the strategy and then the responses was Fred Bizarre. Uh, uh not necessarily publicly known, but the outside lawyer was James St. Clair. He was a very prominent trial lawyer from the law firm of Hale and Dorr in Boston. In fact, he taught trial practice at uh, Harvard Law School. And he had... I guess uh, 12 or 14 lawyers uh, who were representing with him, Nixon in front of the House uh, uh, Judiciary Committee, 
and the court battles over the uh, over the tapes. I was deputy counsel to Fred Bizarre working on strategy. Uh, I transcribed the tapes. Uh, I ran the document rooms holding the seized files. I briefed the president's counselors on Watergate developments. But our public face uh, uh, was was through Jim St. Clair as the, yes, the trial lawyer. The, the, the Department of Justice in those days had about a thousand lawyers, hmm. and under ordinary circumstances, they represented the president in a whole bunch of different ways. But not in this. Uh, but when Elliot Richardson became the president's attorney general, he cut all that off. Wow. He said, no more. We're not going to defend the White House. So looking back, do you think when the Supreme Court, if I recall, I think I'm correct, that they ordered uh, Nixon to release the tapes, right? Do you think that was a righteous decision constitutionally? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, but but let's get very precise because I think I think this is important. Uh, what the Supreme Court ordered was that the su- tapes subpoenaed by the special prosecutor, specific tapes that he had represented to the court n- were necessary for his criminal investigations, should be turned over to, to Chief Judge John Sirica that he should listen to the tapes and he should remove or redact uh, uh, materials that had to do with national security and materials that had to do with executive privilege, having nothing to do with Watergate, such that the special prosecutor would only get tapes uh, or segments of tapes that had been pre-reviewed and were only made available for him to use in criminal prosecutions. Now, there's a huge misunderstanding. There was no holding that those tapes needed to be turned over to the Congress. There was no holding that those tapes needed to be turned over to the public. Those were subsequent decisions. Uh, you see, the, the constitutional construct of our government has three co-equal branches. But Congress has no right to executive materials. They can impeach the president if he doesn't want to turn it over. But they know they have no inherent right to executive materials, uh, uh, and and the Congress has no right to ask uh, uh, for a chief justice's personal notes on a particular case. That's that's not done. The executive branch, except in criminal matters, cannot subpoena a senator's notes on any particular piece of legislation. So there's a general misunderstanding. The only way the tapes got turned over uh, was was. The, the special prosecutor claimed they were needed for criminal prosecutions. I can't see the Supreme Court ruling any other way. I see. Under those circumstances. I see. So earlier you said that you believe that Nixon wasn't involved in the cover up break in. Why did he resign? Yes. Why did he resign? I mean, well, what, it's, it's a wonderful. What, what I mean, no, I mean, we've got to keep it simple because you mean, get a little geeky here and it's hard to follow you. So try to keep it simple for us. I mean, why I, did he I resign would, if they didn't have if he wasn't if he wasn't part of the cover up? I mean, that's the last thing he wanted to do. Why would he resign? All right, hold on to your hold on to your okay. Chair. Well, keep it simple. This is keep it simple. This is this, yeah, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> uh, this we make a stab at this in my book, okay. on, on the Nixon conspiracy, and then people can study the book. Nixon announced his resignation three days after public release of a tape that has become known as the smoking gun. Right. The smoking gun had Nixon clearly 
agreeing with Bob Haldeman's suggestion that they get the CIA to tell the FBI not to interview two people. Yes. Uh, that was one of the tapes the Supreme Court said needed to be turned over to the prosecutors. When Nixon's lawyers heard that tape for the first time, uh, uh, they panicked, they misunderstood the tape, and they said, well, this shows Nixon was in on the cover-up from day one. Now, I'm pretty familiar with uh, that tape. I was the third person to hear it. I prepared the official transcript, and I'm the one that named it the smoking gun. Uh, but along with Nixon's other lawyers, we were we were mistaken. You were wrong. But that's the straw that caused Nixon to resign. It, it caused his remaining support to evaporate. Wow. But that was first known on August 5th. He resigned. He announced his resignation on August 8th. But Nixon was already on the ropes. He'd already been named a co-conspirator in the cover-up, and he'd already the, the House Judiciary Committee had already recommended his impeachment. Why did they do that? And that goes back to your first question. When we started a little uh, less than an hour ago, Patrick, it turns out after the roadmap was released in 2018, the special prosecutor specifically accused Nixon of having personally authorized the payment of blackmail uh, to uh, Howard Hunt. And they said, we know he did this on Wednesday, March 21st. And, and we're just telling you that's true. But we didn't know that was the accusation. And we couldn't fight it. We were we were shadow boxing in the dark. Uh, now that it's out in the public, and this is what's covered in my book. This is what's uh, documented in, in a, its own geeky way. The prosecutors couldn't prove it. They wanted it to be true. So they lied about it. Now, we, we didn't know because we didn't know the accusation had even been made. It's amazing. So, the way the case was shaping up before this huge mistake over the, uh, over the smoking gun, the way the case was shaping up was both John Dean and President Nixon agreed the first time Dean ever told him any specifics about the cover-up was this Wednesday meeting, March 21st. And so the issue is, what did he do after he learned the specifics about the cover-up? What did Nixon do? We were all prepared to fight that. Now, to, to be fair to the prosecutors, amazingly, that meeting ends at noon, and that very night, at 10 o'clock that very night, a payment was made to one of the Watergate burglars. So the prosecutor said, well, the thing speaks for itself. He learns at noon, yep. the payment's made at night. What other explanation could there be? But they couldn't prove it. So they lied about it. They lied about it in secret. We couldn't disprove it. Wow. But now, now that it's out in the public, now that your, your listeners can can buy the book, uh, go look up the documents at, uh, at the National Archives, they're online, uh, or they can read about it in my book, The Nixon Conspiracy. They can see the prosecutors made it up. They were so eager to bag Richard Nixon, they, they cheated. So, all yes, you, they, but they, how they did, avoided, they how did all you, election. how they did all you high priced lawyers make that such a dumb decision like that? How did you give them that bad advice? Yeah. Well, yeah. we didn't. We, we we misunderstood the tape. Wow. Uh, now, what's what's intriguing? Remember, there's a complete turnover of staff, so the people are gone. But John Dean knew from day one that the lawyers misunderstood the tape. In fact, in a book that he published in 2014, that's just a few years ago. 
there's a footnote at page 54. And he says, you know, funny thing, the, the smoking gun tape has been misunderstood from the get go. If, if Nixon's lawyers had really understood it, they would have known it had nothing to do with Watergate. And, and this is a quote, Nixon might have lived to fight again another day. In some, the smoking gun was shooting blanks. Well, John Dean kept quiet about that for the previous 35 years. John Dean testified at the cover-up trial. He's the main government witness for the government. And he was asked about the smoking gun tape. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't tell you the background of that tape. He says, oh, they were worried about Gordon Liddy. That's amazing. That's just amazing. So, well, I mean, think, yeah. think about what I go through. Yeah. You know, this mistake. Now, he was on the ropes. Who knows what would have happened because of this secret accusation about authorizing the payoff. Right. That's, that's untrue. There's a mistake uh, that his lawyers made on the smoking gun tape. And Nixon's out of office. He had a very, very successful first term. He'd won re-election by a, a landslide. Yes. And, and two years later, he's forced to resign in disgrace. So my, my view, you want to know what I think, I spent all these years, all this research, all these books, I think he was driven from office by a secret cabal of, of uh, partisan prosecutors who cheated, of vengeful and vindictive judges, and a complacent media. I mean, if you, re if you remember back, you're two years younger than I am, but, but you remember back, there was no alternative news. There were no oh, podcasts. There nothing, were no man. programs like that. They were all over it, right? It was one line, one point of view. Yeah. And if you didn't buy into their narrative, you never you never saw airtime. Sure. There was nothing. So, I mean, Nixon, Nixon couldn't defend himself in the public press. Yeah. So, yes, yes, he resigned. He's forever tarred as the one president who resigned. Everybody's taught he's a crook. But you try asking them what he did. What did Nixon do? And they can't tell you. Oh, he was a part of a conspiracy. Oh, he was obstructing justice. But they can't tell you a specific act because you know, there isn't one. The, the, the kind of thing that confuses me, I mean, Nixon's, Nixon was an attorney. He was a pretty smart guy. I, I can't believe that he wouldn't have been more into this thing asking the kind of questions that I would be asking if I somebody I have to leave office. You know, I mean... I don't understand well, they, that. You, I don't understand they, they, uh, they didn't take it seriously at the beginning. They thought it was a PR problem because they weren't, they weren't at risk. Huh. Nixon wasn't involved. Holman Ehrlichman had no idea about it. And they had put John Dean in charge. Hmm. And John Dean is the one who really messed it up and then threw all of them under the bus in an attempt to save himself. And, of course, the media gloms on to Dean as their as their hero as a hero yeah. and, and, and then they take judge sirica who was the most reverse judge in the in the whole district <laughs> uh for violation of uh, due process rights time magazine names him man of the year and woodward and bernstein who were doing very little more than leaking what the government already knew they're they're uh, uh looked up to as great investigative reporters and and they know they know that Deep Throat is not a member of Nixon's staff, but for 40 years, they let the public believe that. Yes, sir. I mean, they in, in the movie, All the President's Man, it's clear as a bell 
deep throat works on the White House staff, and they knew that was untrue. Uh, so, um, can you, this is a, be speculation, I know as an attorney you don't like doing that, but who could have been the forces supporting financially and otherwise this cabal that really wanted Nixon out? Any theories? Uh, uh, yeah, I can, I can tell you what I believe. Okay, what you believe? It's yeah. speculation. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's the opposition, and it's mainly the remnants of the Kennedy political dynasty. Uh, uh, and it's really strange. I, I didn't appreciate this when I was on the White House staff, but hundreds of people came to Washington in 1961 with Jack Kennedy. This was going to be fun. Then don't, go, don't have to go to Wall Street anymore. Come to Washington and be in charge. And then their moment in the sun is taken from them improperly by his assassination. So their hopes and dreams turn to Bobby Kennedy. Bobby's going to run. We're going to be back in power. Well, Bobby goes and gets himself assassinated, too. And it leaves one Kennedy brother, Teddy. Teddy. Teddy's not the man his brothers were. Right. But you need a Kennedy in the White House for this particular group of people to get back into power. Very talented people. And they worked. There's no memo out there saying, here's how we're going to do it. It's like the fish in a school of fish or the, the birds in the sky. They all knew what they needed to do to get Nixon out to pave the way for Teddy Kennedy to run for president. Wow. Now, he, he didn't run in 76. He ran in 1980, and, and, and he, he proved to be incompetent. In but the, the effort was Kennedy loyalists wow. trying to get back into power. Trying to get back into power. Talk about Potomac Fever. Yeah. Let me tell you, potomac fever is a real thing. Oh, yeah. So let me ask you a few little current questions, if you don't mind. Just your opinion, because you're into this stuff. I'm kind of curious. Um, there's many people that conjecture that uh, Donald Trump getting into office was really an accident, that the big forces out there, the globalists, they just let this one slip through their fingers. Do you think that's true? Well, I think it's fair to say his election came as a surprise to most people. Uh, there, there are interesting parallels with Nixon. And I know Nixon. I don't know Trump. Right. They were both classic outsiders. Uh, they unexpectedly won in very close elections. They came into Washington opposed by every institution in the capital city. Yet they had very successful first terms. Uh, and then the analogy, and they're very thin-skinned. Uh, uh, then the, the analogies begin to break down. Nixon is a, a, a career politician who's an expert in foreign affairs. Uh, no charisma at all, but hardworking. Uh, Trump is an entrepreneur, no experience in politics, charismatic as can be, uh, uh, and is used to making instant decisions on his own. Uh, he doesn't really need a lot of staff work. Nixon believed in, in staff work, had a lot of, a lot of supporters. Uh, I would suggest neither would encourage the comparison. Trump doesn't like Nixon. Nixon's a loser. Nixon resigned. Trump would never have resigned. Uh, Nixon, Nixon would, have, would have told you, I believe, Trump's approach to problem solving uh, wasn't his, that, that he uh, he worked with the other side. He ran. He was a pragmatist. He's not. He's not necessarily a true conservative, uh, but he he accomplished a huge amount yeah, he in that well. first term. Yeah. 
Uh, and then, and then, of course, they both feel they were robbed. Uh, but Nixon won re-election by a landslide. He was then robbed uh, uh, of the benefit of that re-election. Uh, Trump, of course, feels he was robbed in the, sure. in the re-election sure. re-election effort. Yeah. Uh, so, um, who can you conjecture, uh, um, Mr. Shepard, of who the forces are behind the people that spent four years trying to get rid of Trump? Who are these people above the media? Well, you sure, it's, it's 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 his political opponents, Patrick. Uh, but there's, I don't. It would be more than that, anybody. right? Though, wouldn't it be more globalists, well, even even deep staters, and the people that you know they wanted open borders and they they didn't like the tariffs. Well, the, 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 they didn't the, like the, any of this stuff. Do, let's do this. Yeah. There's there's three concepts that weren't around for Nixon: deep state fake news, and politicized prosecutions. Uh, it would be, that was a hard sell back then. Same groups, same things were going on. I mean, you talk about the federal bureaucracy. They'd been in power since 1932. Uh, the press was monolithic. There was, there was no alternative on the press. And politicized prosecutions, investigations and prosecutions, didn't, blink, didn't begin with the effort to get Donald Trump. Uh, that clearly existed in Watergate. Now, one of the human difficulties is people tend to believe the movie started when they walked into the theater. So I get in, get to Washington in 1969, and my memory starts from there. But I wouldn't be surprised to learn that those shenanigans and those efforts had been going on long before I got there. Yes, that there was a biased press. There was there was uh, out to get people. I mean. Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy wanted to bag Jimmy Hoffa so bad, he, he's personally hired a group called the Get Hoffa Squad yes. in the Department of yes. Justice. And, and that, that's, that's not how our system of justice is supposed to work. But that's, that's the way it was done. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to find a meeting. I don't think you're going to find a memo. I don't think you're going to find somebody in charge. What you're going to find is a group of very dedicated, very hardworking, very bright people who sense their self-interest will be improved if Nixon's or Trump's is thwarted. So they just automatically start pulling together. Yeah. So uh, keep aside your um, leanings towards being more conservative. Do you think do you think that this issue of this whole voting thing that went on two years or a year ago is 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 swampy and as crooked as it appears to be in your opinion uh, i have not spent any time looking into this yeah this is just not my expertise i i believe that it's very clear we were outsmarted mm. uh, uh i i think that the hallmark of our democracy is called the australian ballot and it has four characteristics it is a single unified ballot where everybody appears. It is printed by the government at government expense. It is available only at, at authorized polling stations, and you must show up in person to vote. The further you get from those four characteristics, the greater the chance of voting irregularities. And COVID provided the perfect opportunity to do the whole thing. for those irregularities. Yeah. And we didn't get on it fast enough. Hmm. I think you'll find in the 2022 election, there are 
reestablish stronger requirements to to hold to a secret ballot cast in person. I mean, there are exceptions for authentic medical reasons or authentic travel, but cast in person at an authorized polling place. And then everybody can come vote. You've got no complaint about that. But there are always going to be accusations because of ballot harvesting or write-ins or private money contributed to government entities to encourage get out the vote, to to county election boards. Really unbelievable that that worked. But it, it it's uh, that's where I come out. Well, I think we can. And there's many stories today that people conjecture that the '60 election that uh, you know his father bought the votes in Chicago and they won Illinois and that's how he won the election. I mean, that's well, it's very clear. It, it, it's very clear his father bought the primary votes in West Virginia. Yeah. So that he emerged instead of Hubert Humphrey. Wow. Uh, there are all kinds of allegations about Illinois and about Texas. There's a book coming out, uh, I think, early next year by Irv Gelman uh, that deals with the 1960 election. And Irv has uncovered as much on that as I've uncovered on Watergate. Now, I I want people to buy my book, uh, The Nixon Conspiracy. I think it'd make a great Christmas gift, particularly for for older people who live through Watergate. Yeah. I mean, they they heard about it. They know it. and, And, you know, this is it is amazing what has surfaced in the past 50 years. It changes everything we've been taught about Watergate, and it's based on real documents. You can you go on my website, and I've posted every single document referenced in my books. So the, th- this isn't hide the ball. This isn't, oh, if you knew what I know, this is here. Here's all my research. Here's everything I've uncovered. You can come follow it, too. Well, it was very fun talking to you. I really enjoyed it. You're a real attorney, though. I tell you what, you're, you're, it's like you're very careful with what you say, which I, I appreciate. It's, yeah. it's part of it's part of my DNA, Patrick. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, I, that's okay. I am I am I am an attorney through and through, and I I can't undo it. Yeah, yeah, you can. Okay, the name of the book is The Nixon Conspiracy. It's a great idea, Christmas gift. Hang around, get in your woolies, and sit on the couch and learn. For all of you who've been through Watergate, uh, to really get the story, a fellow that. Spent a lot of years working on it. Uh, Jeff uh, Jeff Shepard, thank you for being here. It's been an honor. Thank you, sir. Thank you again, Patrick. Good day to you. Pleasure. Uh, Jeff Shepard, pretty amazing. I mean, well, this story, I mean, come on. Uh, One of my favorite movies, oh, I meant to ask him what I, oh, I forgot. One of my favorite movies is Nixon by um, Oliver Stone, one of my uh, top, top, director guys and uh, I forgot I was going to ask uh, Mr. Shepard what he thought about the movie but uh, I left that one out all right I will see you uh, we're going to take tomorrow off Thursday and I will see you tomorrow or Friday Friday and we'll talk about how it takes a long time to get young one of my specialties and uh, we'll do it on Friday thank you for your ongoing support appreciate it take care of yourself we'll see you on Friday 10 o'clock central time on OneRadioNetwork.com. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.